All right. Good evening. Everybody ready to study the Word of God tonight? Book of Revelation, chapter 6. Let's turn there. Book of Revelation, chapter 6. We were very blessed this past weekend to have uh, Rich Freeman come and uh, do both the uh, Middle East Crisis uh, Conference in the weekend and then, of course, uh, church services on Saturday and Sunday. And uh, I hope that uh, we can keep focusing our attention. We, we did have a, a lot of uh, sets of the uh, conference made as well as the, uh, uh, the services. So uh, if you ordered them, uh, please, uh, please get them and pay for them. <laughs> okay, let's see here. Well, while they're bringing it up, I'm going to turn these lights off over here. So you can better see. And maybe we might cut some of these lights off here, as we normally do, so you can see better. Now, if we cut off all the lights, you would be able to see up here, but you wouldn't have your Bibles. You couldn't see them unless you brought one of those head things, you know, like uh, those little battery-powered things. All right. No, that's not it. That's it. All right. Revelation chapter 6. <clears throat> now the focus of, of our study this evening is verses 3 and 4. But what I'd like to do is begin by reading in verse 1. Verses 1 through 4. Again, kind of gaining context from our, from our last study, which was in verses 1 and 2. Dealing with the first horseman of the apocalypse, which was the rider on the white horse. And you'll notice here that it says, Now, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals... And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked and behold, a a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. Again, a bow with no arrows. Conquering to conquer, meaning bringing some sort of peace, which was a false peace, or which will be a false peace, when this does actually happen. We enter into verse 3, and it says, when he opened the second seal, so now the second seal is being broken, or loosed. I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. And another horse, fiery red. Now some translations may just say red, others may have fiery red. Fiery red is actually more literal to the, to the Greek language because it's a, it's one word in the Greek that is different than just the color red. And we'll talk about that when we get there. Another horse, fiery red, went out and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him 
a great sword. Now we have moved from our vision of worship in heaven in chapters 4 and 5 to the breaking of the seals on the scroll taken from the Father's hand by Jesus, the only one who was worthy to take the scroll, worthy to break the seals, worthy to set loose now the consummation of the ages or the judgments that were, to, that were now to come upon the earth. The church has been represented by the 24 elders that are before the throne, therefore the church being representative or the, the elders representing the, uh, all the redeemed before the cross and after the cross, in other words, all the redeemed in heaven with, with the Lord, worshiping the Lord, uh, that's taking place. But the scrolls and the seals and the breaking of the seals by Jesus signifies now the onset of God's judgment upon the earth in chapter 6 of the book of Revelation. Now this brings up, once again, a curious issue. It brings up something that sometimes is confusing to people. And it may have seemed odd to us that the glorious worship of chapters 4 and 5 is immediately followed by the awful judgments that begin in chapter 6. You know, why, in other words, is there worship and then there's judgment? Now, we've covered that a little bit in, in our previous studies. But the Scriptures do constantly tie these two ideas together. The Scriptures do tie these ideas together, worship and justice. Now, understand, worship and justice. God is a just God. Now, God is worthy to be worshipped, so that's the first thing that we must do. But God is a God of justice. Now we know because if we're represented in heaven already by the 24 elders, then God is merciful too. He's been merciful to those who have believed in Christ, believed in what Christ came to do for us on the cross, in Christ's resurrection. We believed in that. And the, the merciful thing is He's forgiven us of our sins. And so then we find ourselves there in heaven. But God is still a God of justice. Take, for example, if you will, Isaiah 30, verse 18. Isaiah 30, verse 18 says, Therefore the Lord will wait that He may be gracious to you. Now, have you ever thought of God being one who waits for you? Because I can tell you this, people that, that, uh, that lean toward uh, legalistic things in the Scripture, you know, trying to be legalistic, you know, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. When you lean in that direction, God doesn't wait for you. But isn't it interesting that God does wait for us? That He's so merciful that He waits for us. It's not that He's getting ahead of us, because you know what? God, God never gets ahead of us. He never runs. He never goes too slow. He's just at the right place at the right time. If you look at the Gospels, Jesus was always at the right place at the right time. He knew exactly where he was going to go. He knew exactly where he was going to be. He knew exactly what he was going to do. And he never rushed any place. He was never late. Isn't that wonderful to know? Now, how come we're always late? But he waits for us. So that he could be gracious. So he could show his grace and his mercy toward us. But then notice this. And therefore, he will be exalted. What is that? That's worship. He will be exalted. We worship Him. And we praise Him. So that He might have mercy on you. There's His mercy again. But notice the next phrase. For the Lord is a God of justice. 
He's just and He's merciful. And we worship Him for both reasons. We actually worship Him for one reason. Because He's God. And He's worthy of worship. And He's worthy of our praise. Because He's always just. And He's merciful too. And He says, Blessed are all those who wait for Him. So now He waits for us. We are to wait for Him. And what is it that we're doing here tonight? We're waiting on the Lord. Now consider that waiting as part of our worship. We wait on the Lord. Any of you serve tables any place? If you, or if you ever have worked at a restaurant, you, what, what do they call it? You're waiting on people. You're serving them. Our worship and our service go together. We're worshiping the Lord. We're waiting upon the Lord. So you see how justice and worship go together. This is just one example of many. But I bring this up because now, if God's judgment sounds strange to us, and I tell you this, a lot of people in the world, especially even people going to churches today, they think, oh, God doesn't judge anymore. You know, that whatever God you're trying to, you know, propose is, is if, if he's a God of judgment, then, then I don't want anything to do with that kind of God. I mean, I, I'm a, I, I believe in a God of mercy. Wait a minute, you haven't read the scriptures. We've got to come to know who God is. And what God has stated about, of Himself in the Scriptures. And what the Scriptures say about Jesus. So if God's judgment sounds strange to us, it is because we do not fully understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. We do not understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Man's purpose for living, folks. Man's purpose for living from the very beginning of time, since man was created. Man's purpose for living is to glorify God, and every person will ultimately glorify God. Did you know that? Every person will ultimately glorify God. There are times people that come to church, and you know they, they, they act as if they don't feel like they have to glorify anything about God. They just come and check things out, but they're not listening, they're not paying attention. And they think, well, I worship God my own way. No, if you don't worship God the way He wants you to, then you're not worshiping Him. Y'all can understand that, right? I mean, so if God is holy and God is just and God is, you know, uh, without sin and, he, and, and He's perfect and holy and, and all of those great attributes of His, I mean, they're, 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 they're being manifest in our lives. If that's the way it is, then that's how we are supposed to worship Him. That's how we're supposed to live for Him. That's, how, that's our purpose. It's to glorify God. And every person will ultimately glorify God, whether they have intentions to do that now or not. They used to have an old Fram uh, oil filter commercial that says, you can pay them now or pay me now or pay me later. You know, the, the guy working at an auto parts store, pay me now or pay me later. You can pay me now and get a nice Fram filter and, you know, you get the best oil change. If you don't buy one, and then you'll pay me later when I fix your car. Y'all understand now the pay me now, pay me later thing, right? Well, look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. And, and this, by the way, this is all very important to Revelation 6. So Philippians 2, verse 9 says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, notice, every knee shall bow. Of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee and every tongue. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Where? 
Those in heaven? Those on earth? Those under the earth? Wanted, dead or alive? And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But folks, here's, here's the reality. Here's the reality. And I want you to focus on, on this thought. Some people glorify God by surrendering to Christ's payment for their sin. That's what we did in coming to Jesus. We have focused our attention upon what Christ did for us, and therefore we glorify God by surrendering to Christ's payment for our sins. Others will glorify God by paying for their own sin. Which means they didn't accept the truth of what Christ did for them. Or they rejected the truth for what Christ did for them. And yet their knee will still bow. That's why it's essential for you to accept the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to come to Jesus Christ because of what He did by going to the cross, taking upon Himself our sin, our shame, dying on the cross, shedding His blood for our forgiveness. Dying and then rising again. On the third day. Now God's grace glorifies His love and His justice and judgment glorify His purity. Can I say that again? God's grace glorifies His love and God's judgment glorifies His purity. He's a holy God. And He's a merciful God. He's a just God. He's a gracious God. And so it is quite important that we pay attention when the Lord warns of judgment that is coming. Now, consider, if you will, and, and, and now there have been incidents that have happened between 1986 and today, of course, many Natural disasters have taken place and all. But consider, if you will, that back in, in September of 1986, there were heavy rains that flooded many low-lying areas in the Midwest. One place especially was hit strongly was Tulsa, Oklahoma. But because of terrible floods two years earlier, 1984, law enforcement officers blocked off an exceptionally dangerous street where several people had drowned in one particular town. An officer parked his vehicle in front of the rising waters to prevent any from risking their lives. Now the car was parked there to warn the people to go away, go, go another direction, go another route. Instead, several cars drove around the police car and into the swift water. No regard was given to the danger involved, or even the warning of the officer. Now these stubborn motorists took their safety into their own hands, and they proceeded to do as they pleased. In the same way, the vast multitudes of mankind are headed for eternal destruction because they ignore the danger of sin and the urgent warnings that God has given us in His Word that are meant to barricade their path 
to ultimate destruction and detour them or detour them to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. But this is the way it's like today. People want peace on their own terms. People today want salvation on their own terms. Not God's terms, not not from God's Word, but their own way. People want church on their own terms. People want Christianity on their own terms. People want morality on their own terms. And I suppose that list could go on and on and on. I don't have enough room on there for all the stuff we could say. But the writer of the great white horse of verses 1 and 2, that rider of the white horse represents a most unpleasant thought. What he represents is peace without God. Now, we, we said that he represented false peace, and that's true. Is there any peace without God? That's a true peace. No. So, I'm just enhancing your understanding of the white horse rider... And that is that he represents peace without God. Peace without God, peace without God's word, peace without God's ways, peace without God's guidance and direction, peace without God, period. And even though this horse and rider are not yet here, because we're looking into the future, we're dealing prophetically in the book of Revelation now, and not historically, So understand that even though this horse and rider are not yet here, we can surely see their shadow already on hand. The shadow's on hand. The lower the sun goes down, the longer the shadows go. And the sun is coming down on this earth. The sun is coming down on the world that has, in essence, separated itself from the truth of God. And the shadow is being cast. We'll see, hey, there's a shadow here. That means something's coming. If we take some of the most infamous philosophies adapted by truly godless nations, such as fascism or communism or even Nazism of the the 30s and 40s, and and the like, we can see how they purport the vision of man without God. Their goal for peace is certainly not the same as biblical peace. The goal of man without God in the world today, man, as as the writer of, of Ecclesiastes says, under heaven... The goal is peace, but not with God. And it is not accomplished the same way either. Peace is not accomplished the same way. You can take all of those philosophies that that affect nations today. And I hate to say it, but even democratically, even in democracies, 
Now, let me ask you this before we go on. We say, and we have said this for over 200 years, we're, to, we're supposed to be at one nation under God. But we're not, are we? Maybe there was at one time a majority of people who believed in God and actually served God, but we live in a country today where we're being forced to believe things or we're being forced to accept things that are not godly, that are not biblical. We're forced to accept them by our own government. It's not a nation under God anymore. And then there's this secular humanism. The philosophy that has taken root in our Western world and in much of the educational system in our country today, governmental educational system. And make no mistake, it is as much a religion as communism is. Secular humanists say, no, we're not religious. No, no, yes, you are. You've made secular humanism your religion. Much as communism without God, of course, you know, there's no belief in God. I'll talk about that in a moment. But, but, you know, that's become their religion. A person who says he's an atheist has just developed a new religion. He worships himself. There's no God, you've got to worship yourself. You've got to take care of yourself. You've got to exalt yourself. Self is exalted. So it is as much, in other words, secular humanism is as much a religion as communism is and, and atheism and all of that. Because I want you to consider the similarities. Consider the similarities to some of these uh, godless nations, godless philosophies, godless uh, 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 political stances and stuff with these things. First of all, Secular humanism purports evolution. Evolution is, a big, evolution is the very top of the secular humanistic scale, as it were, of what, what they believe in. And evolution simply is there is no real evidence that God exists. There is no real evidence that God exists. That's what evolutionists say, and that's what secular humanists say. And then there's something called situation ethics. Situation ethics is that man, it says man is the final authority. There are no absolute rules. We can say that that's relativism because relativism is that philosophy that says, you know, nothing is absolute anymore. Everything is relative. Everybody has their own truth, in other words. Situation ethics. Everything changes by the situation. Uh, the end justifies the means can be added to that particular thought. And then there's moral freedom, an interesting one. There is this idea, and by the way, what I'm giving you is the, 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 the Humanist Manifesto that was first written in 1933 in our country and was revised a few years later, I believe in the early 70s. But this, this is part of their manifesto. Moral freedom. Everyone, including children of all ages, should be exposed to all realistic viewpoints including the immoral, that should be immoral and perverse. That should be immoral. So the the moral, immoral, and perverse as acceptable methods of self-expression. 
Do you know that in the, in, in the, in the manifesto, they say that religion is not one of those freedoms? Now, I use the word religion kind of loosely here. Because as believers, we're not religious. We're, we, we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, so, you know, we, we have to understand things from that standpoint. But, but folks, this is what it says in the Secular Humanist Manifesto. It says all these other things. Anything that's perverse. If, 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 if a child grows up, you know, and starts expressing some kind of liberty or freedom in that direction, allow him to do that. It's what happened in the 60s when um, Dr. Spock was telling everybody, well, don't correct your children. You're going you're gonna, to, you know, damage them for life. Really? We stopped correcting our children, and now in our, in our um, penal system, we, 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 we don't have enough room in, in, in prisons and jails anymore. It's filled with people because of these moral freedoms of their expression. A person robs a bank, hey, it's his, his freedom, isn't it? That's how he's expressing himself. Self-expression. Rob a bank, shoot a person, kill somebody. Kind of like, why, why are we trying to get off this kid that was part of this bombing plot? Everybody knows what he did. Well, I'm not trying to get into legal actions with that, but I think we all feel the same way. And then there's self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. Man is not accountable to any higher power. Responds, he's only responsible to himself. Sexual permissiveness. Any form is acceptable. Any form of sexual permissiveness. Pornography, worst kind. Bestiality. And then there is an anti-religious bias put into the Secular Humanist Manifesto. What they say is religion is harmful, it is meaningless, and it is irrelevant. And then there is socialism. Socialism is government ownership or control of practically everything and everybody. One world government is self-explanatory. That's what it's all headed for. The Bible teaches it. It's going to happen. We're going to see it in the book of Revelation as we get into it. And then there's death education. No life beyond the grave. And so euthanasia is acceptable. You can add to that list, of course, abortion. And then there's human destiny. The man takes charge of his own future and has the power within himself to achieve the world of his own dreams. That's the religion that is fighting us, believers of Jesus Christ, tooth and nail, to the very end. Keep us from worshiping the Lord as we know how from the Scriptures. To keep us from saying anything that is harmful to others and yet... They can say whatever they want about us. Does that pretty much sum it up as we understand it? Because that's happening today in our society. It's happening in our country. It's happening in our city. It's happening in our churches. 
Is it any wonder that the Lord has said of mankind in Romans chapter 3, Paul quotes this from the Old Testament. But in Romans 3 verses 15 through 18, he says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. You say they cry peace, but you see, it's peace on their own terms. And sometimes you just got to kill a lot of people to get peace. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And notice verse 17, the way of peace they have not known. The true way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Oh, how prominent these things are today, but this is only the shadow of what is yet to come. Now, as there is today, there will be a cry for peace and safety. So many people say, we need peace in this world. There's too much bloodshed. There's too much killing. We need peace in this world. I thought it was very interesting that uh, Rich Freeman mentioned this week as he was talking about, uh, on Saturday morning, about the, um, the Ezekiel um, passages uh, from chapter 37-39. And was mentioning as well, I believe on Sunday, when, when he talked a little bit about how the, the one white... Um, horse uh, rider that represents peace, you know, a false peace, would possibly, of course, we know we, we called him the Antichrist last week, but, but would possibly be called upon to, to bring about a peace during the time of the confusion of the rapture of the church. It's, a, it's an interesting thought, a very possible thought as well. People crying for peace and safety. People are crying for peace and safety today. And that supposed peace and safety will come. It will come. And I want you to, uh, I want you to look at 1 Thessalonians 5 once again. We, we looked at it last week. But I want to mention this. But what, at what cost is that peace and safety going to come? So we have to ask the question. What cost will that peace and safety come? At what cost, I should say. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 1 says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you. You know, that is as, as contemporary of a statement that I've ever seen in the Scriptures about today. It's as if the Apostle Paul is writing to us directly in 2013, and he's saying, Concerning the times and seasons, brethren, brethren you have no need that I should write you. You're living in it. Y'all, y'all understand what he's saying about the end times. Of these times and the seasons, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now, we are not quite yet to the day of the Lord, because we mentioned last time that the day of the Lord was actually the day of darkness, day of destruction, that is, in other words, the the time of great tribulation, or the time of tribulation, seven years of tribulation. So he says, you, you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Nobody's going to be expecting it. But notice verse 3, he says, For when they say peace and safety, as if peace has finally come to the world at a time of critical uh, confusion and, and, and consternation, when they say peace and safety, in other words, they're saying it because it's come. Can you understand that? They're saying it now because it's come. This is not a cry for it. This is, this is a rejoicing for it. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. And by the way, that phrase, labor pains upon a pregnant woman, is really something that the Jewish people knew about because it was written in the prophets 
about the end times and about what God was going to need to do to bring Israel back to Him. So this, this is all very significant. Uh, these are all very significant statements. But peace and safety, who is crying out for peace the most today? Israel is, Israel is crying out for peace and safety. Why? Because they're a little nation surrounded by many nations that hate them. God has protected them, yes. But they, they have given land, they have given concession after concession, and no one has given them peace. They still are considered the bad guys, even though they're surrounded by their enemies. So a lot of what we're dealing with, of course, we mentioned that as we look at the prophetic uh, uh, landscape, we cannot understand prophecy without knowing that the center of prophecy is Israel and more specifically Jerusalem. So that's going to come as we, as we study this more. And as we saw last time, the rider of the white horse, the Antichrist emerges. The Antichrist will emerge. The rider on the white horse, securing a bloodless peace which will last some three and a half years. All indications from Daniel, the book of Revelation, all indicate that it is dealing with Israel and Jerusalem specifically and a rebuilt temple. A temple where this Antichrist can, at, in the very middle of that seven-year period, and after the first three and a half years, will go into the temple much as Antiochus Epiphanes went into the temple during the time of the Maccabees, desecrated the temple. And he will desecrate the temple by putting himself in the place where God would be honored and glorified. So, we saw a little bit of that in Daniel chapter 9. A false peace for the first three and a half years. That doesn't mean there was complete peace it just means that now there is Israel with, with, with Jerusalem and with the temple. But in the very middle of it, it is in the midst of the day of the Lord. The very middle of the day of the Lord. The great tribulation will then begin and, and death and destruction now appears. The great tribulation being the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. So as the second seal is broken now, now we're, now we're finally got to the second seal. And I, and I felt like we needed, we needed to lay that foundation to get to this part. Because what did we talk about first? A false peace. What do we talk about now? A second rider emerges when the seal is broken or loosed. And this is what we find. When he opened the second seal, that is Jesus, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. So speaking to John, he says, open your eyes and look. Record. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. Now, peace has come, right? But it's a false peace. 
And now the second rider takes peace from the earth. Like the guy, you know, the, the joker who, you know, you got you standing on the end of a, of a rug and then he pulls it out from under you, right? <laughs> you mean you guys aren't practical jokers? You guys are so sweet, lovable to everybody. But that's what the enemy does. Deceives and pulls the carpet right out from under you. Takes peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. Started with a bow without any arrows. This is a man we can trust. We're tired of war. We're tired of killing. We just want peace and safety. All right, now you got it for three and a half years. At the end of three and a half years, eh, fooled you. Remember that this is a view from heaven. Where is John? In heaven. He's been taken there to see what's happening in the end. Where John is viewing the vision being given to him, he sees a red horse that he describes as fiery red or fire-colored. One, one very literal translation calls it flame-colored blood red. Flame-colored blood red. It is to, to give that impression, that indication, that this isn't just a nice color red. It is a fiery red. It more speaks of the character of the nature of the horse and of the rider. This is believed to be the initial appearance in the Revelation, at least in characteristic of Satan himself, coinciding with the image described in Revelation chapter 12, <clears throat> verses 3 and, 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 and 9. Let's look at verse 3 of Revelation 12. Turn there in your Bibles. I don't hear any Bibles flapping. A few pages. Made me feel happy. Give me a little wind by, by doing that with your pages. Revelation 12, verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. And then in verse 9, it says, So the great dragon was cast out, but now we, we know who it is, that serpent of old. When do we first meet that serpent? Genesis chapter... Genesis chapter 3. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. The red horse represents a bloody warfare. The effort to bring universal world peace apart from Christ will fail. Because again, it is peace without God. It is peace without Christ. It is peace without wisdom. It is peace without the Word of God. It only lasts about three and a half years, and in that it was a false peace anyway. False peace is, is, is designed to lull you into thinking that you're safe. Christ's peace will never lull you. Christ's peace will keep you confident in Him, 
Christ's peace will keep you focused on Him. Christ's peace will give you the desire to see others come to that kind of peace. But the peace of, of the world or the peace of the enemy or the peace of... Uh, there, there's no peace. Because Jesus alone is the Prince of Peace. God alone is the one who can give peace. The effort to bring universal world peace apart from Christ will fail. And this failure will result in strife, violence, and bloodshed. Now take notice that the Antichrist will exchange his empty bow for a sword. He exchanges the empty bow, no arrows, with a sword. Did you see that? The rider on the white horse, false peace, bow, no arrows. The next vision, red horse, and a sword. It brings to mind a description given by Jesus concerning the devil in John 8, 44. He says, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer. Do you see that? He was a murderer from the beginning. Satan came to murder. He came to kill and to destroy. He does not stand for the truth, Jesus said, because there's no truth in him. False peace to lull you into death and destruction. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he's a liar and the father of it. He was a murderer from the beginning. It is important to keep in mind that the restrainer, who is the Holy Spirit, the restrainer is at that time taken from the earth. And actually before the white horse. Time-wise, chronologically, taken before the white horse rider comes into the picture. So that the slaughter is permeated into men by satanic power. You see, it says in Second Thessalonians 2, verse 7, it says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Now, that was 2000, almost 2,000 years ago that, that, that Paul wrote this. He says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. He restrains is speaking of the, of, of the Holy Spirit. When is the Holy Spirit actually taken? It's not the, as if the Holy Spirit disappears. How is the Holy Spirit working today on this earth? The Holy Spirit is working today on this earth through the church. Through the church. Through the, tr the true church of Jesus Christ. Through every true believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is working in us. The Bible tells us very clearly that the Spirit is in us. We were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and if we were baptized in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit not only has come upon us, first He comes alongside of us, convicts us of our sin, He comes upon us so that we might know and be able to say that Jesus Christ is Lord, and then He comes in us. 
The 120 in the upper room of, of Acts chapter 2. It's a good example. You know, it, it's, it's, it's what teaches us that there they were gathered waiting for the promise of the Father. And when the promise came, it came as a rush of mighty wind through that room and into the very hearts and lives of those, those 120. The Holy Spirit came and there were these tongues of fire upon them signifying the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. But if you remove the church... Now the restrainer has been removed. So that now the Antichrist, the son of perdition, and those who follow him will do what they do. Lawlessness. They'll do it without law. and Without God's law. Restrainer is taken out of the way. Of those days, Jesus said this in Matthew 24, verses 6 and 7. He says, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. We'll get to that in the next uh, study with a third writer. But peace pacts and alliances are going to be meaningless. Peace treaties are going to be meaningless. For in those last perilous days... Men will be truce breakers. Paul puts that word truce breaker in the list uh, that he gives in 2 Timothy chapter 2. People will become truce breakers. They will break their truce. They will break their promises not to fire upon each other. The phrase in our text in verse 4, the phrase that says that people should kill one another... Suggests war within each nation, war within each class of people. There will be class wars, there will be religious wars, as it were, there already have been. There will be even race wars. All kinds of wars are going to take place. All the wars that the world has ever known put together will have been mild when compared with the worldwide reign of terror and slaughter of human lives in that day. And I want you to consider a verse from Ezekiel 38, verse 21, one that we heard this past weekend. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. Every man's sword will be against his brother. We've seen it time and again in the scriptures when when enemies of Israel have tried, or Israel and Judah have tried to destroy them, and they turn to the Lord for protection. God protects them, but he protects them very interestingly. 
the ones who have confederated to go against Israel fight against each other and they kill each other off. <laughs> that happened when Jehoshaphat was king. And three nations came together against Israel. And God commanded them to worship the Lord. Think about that. God commanded them not to take sword, but to take this, the praises before the people. And when they did that, the nations that were coming against Israel attacked each other and defeated each other. That's the way God works. But there, there's coming a time when people are still going to have sword against each other, and especially their brothers. And if I were to ask you where the first recorded war took place, the answer, of course, is found in Genesis chapter 4. Even though, you know, you could argue that it's Genesis chapter 3, that Satan came and uh, through his deception. Think about, think about Genesis chapter 3 as actually being the, the false peace. Did God really say these things? Did God really tell you that you can't eat from the, you know, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He just doesn't want you to be like him. But if you eat, you know, eat the fruit, you'll be just like him. You'll see everything just like he does, and you'll do everything just like he does. They were lulled into a false peace, a false confidence. So the first war really is in chapter 4. It was begun by Satan between two brothers. Cain and Abel. War has been a part of man's experience since that day. This picture of bloodshed in Revelation 6 speaks to us believers and has to, and has to every believer in every age. But the Lord is ultimately in control even though He is not responsible for the lawless deeds of men and nations because those men and nations will be judged Righteously. The nations will be judged. Make no mistake about it. When you read the prophecies, nations will be judged. Even our nation will be judged. We will be judged for what we did with His truth. We will be judged for what we did for His people and for Israel. For the longest time, we were the strongest ally of Israel. And no matter what much of our own problems were, God continued to bless this nation. But a tremendous shift came. And when that shift came, politically, and began to lean toward all of the things that are abominations to God. And we find ourselves in critical peril. And this is why we need to pray for our country to turn back but it, got, it has to begin first and foremost with us. 
You see, we are very foolish if we believe that the world can have peace as long as evil, godless men are the heads of nations. Out of World War I came the League of Nations, but it failed because there was no power to prevent a self-seeking nation from withdrawing. Out of World War II came the United Nations Organization, admittedly today a failure. The United Nations is a joke, folks. And I'm not saying that from a political standpoint. But in light of prophecy and prophetic issues, the United Nations is a joke. They're also financially bankrupt. Between both wars, World War I and World War II, and then after World War II, there were these Nuremberg trials of Nazi leadership. But between World War I and World War II, during that time when, when the Nazis were growing in power in Germany, it was revealed in the trials of Nuremberg that from 1933 to 1941, Germany violated 69 treaties. There were treaties made in those days. They violated 69 of those treaties. But as bad as Hitler was, as bad as the concentration camps were, as bad as the death camps were, as bad as, as you go down through history, even the killing fields of Cambodia, as bad as they were, and so on, they will in no way compare with the destruction that the Antichrist and dragon will cause. For Jesus said of this time in verses 21 and 22 of Matthew 24, He said, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. Man would just destroy himself completely and totally. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And let's not forget Israel. Daniel 12 verse 1 tells us that this will be the worst time that the nation of Israel will ever experience. Mark it and read it tonight. Daniel 12, verse 1. This will be the worst time that the nation of Israel will ever experience. It is called in Scripture the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 30. Maybe I didn't get all of that right. Which way am I going? There we go. I must have gone backwards, didn't I? Sorry about that. Jeremiah 30, verse 7, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is a time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. The time of Jacob's trouble. Who's Jacob? We're studying Jacob, by the way, in Genesis, right? He gets a name change pretty soon. His name will be changed to Israel. So it's the time of Israel's trouble. You know, the hippies of the 60s and the 70s, they tried to bring about world peace with their music, with their free love, with their flowers, their roms into 
Eastern religions. And they failed. Failed. They tried to bring in peace through drinking Coca-Cola. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. Did it work? No, it just made us fatter. The New Agers of the 80s and the 90s, they tried to bring about world peace through meditation, crystals, harmonic convergences at various places around the globe. And that happened a few years ago. They had one, one area up in um, Arizona by Sedona. They had this uh, mountain that looks like a bell. They call it the bell, the bell Rock or whatever. It's, I forget what it's called. Anyway, they all converged on this one day. They were going to bring world peace. I called it the moronic conversion. It's a morons. Well, did it bring peace? Gotten worse, hasn't it? The Bible seems to be right about what's happening in our day and time. But people are refusing to consider it. What, are they, is the Bible just lucky? Coincidental? They failed. Political leaders, governments have tried and failed. Why? One simple reason. God has said in Jeremiah 17:9, "The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart of man. That's why Jesus came. He came to save this world from itself and from its sin. You know, as you look at the violence and the hatred and the struggle for power, it seems like things are getting out of control. But make no mistake about it, things are going to get worse. Climaxing with this man of peace, turning into a man of war. And as Christians, it is easy to get discouraged at the state of this world. And if for some reason you are discouraged tonight, may I say with all love and due respect, you have your eyes focused on the wrong, on the wrong object or place or person. You see, Jesus said before he went to the cross in John 16:33, he said, "These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Because he is the prince of peace. There can be no peace without Jesus Christ. There can be no peace without accepting the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There can be no peace in our hearts. There's a bumper sticker. I think you all have seen it. No Jesus, N-O, N-O. No Jesus, no peace. N-O, no peace. No Jesus, K-N-O-W, no peace. K-N-O-W. Peace. Pretty cool. 
If you don't have Jesus in your heart and in your life, you won't have peace. But if you know Him, then you will know His peace. Let me leave you with the words of Psalm 61, verses 1 through 4. I hope I'll go in the right direction this time. Psalm 61, verse 1 says, Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, do the times in which we live sometimes overwhelm us? Well, here's the prayer. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Not the rock, not the rock in Sedona. Lead me to the rock who is Jesus Christ. Because He is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me. A strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. No matter how much the world is falling apart around us, right here, right now, there is peace. Not because you're here, but because Jesus is here. And hopefully he's here in your heart. And so we can rejoice. But let's not go to that extreme that says, oh yeah, we rejoice and forget about prayer and forget about others and forget about telling people about Jesus, you know, and, and doing what the Lord wants us to do. But keeping our focus always on His Word, on His calling, on His commitments that He's given to each of us to follow. Because Jesus is coming, let's be ready for that return. Let's pray. We thank you.